Turn in your Bible to the Gospel according to John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. If you have uh, been with us for the last couple months, really, you know that we've been walking together through John's Gospel, most likely the last Gospel that was written sometime between 90 and 100 AD. Some people push it earlier, some people push it later, but it's written after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's written very likely towards the end of John's life as he reflects on his experiences with Jesus and his unique perspective with Jesus. We know that John was part of Jesus' inner circle, and so there's things in John that aren't in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you might ask, where did that come from? Well, it's because John was one of Jesus' best friends, and so he saw things that the other disciples might not have. Last week, our brother Jerry Carpenter did a great job walking us through to the end of John chapter 4, where we saw the message of Jesus spreading through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth when we see this Gentile figure, this official, come to Jesus and ask him to heal his son. And now we find ourselves in our chapter this morning back in Jerusalem. In this passage, we find Jesus performing another one of his miraculous signs, and scholars have long noted that John organizes his gospel around the signs of Jesus. This is his sort of shorthand term for Jesus' miracles, and there are roughly seven signs in John's gospel. We come to another one here, but before we dive into the text, I think I guess it's important for us to clear a little bit of ground, because I fear that far too often... When we look at the miracles of Jesus, we sell them short. We don't realize all that they offer us, the the window they offer us into the person of Christ. We look at the miracles of Jesus, the signs, and we think that, you know, this is just Jesus proving that he's God. And, And there's a sense in which that's absolutely true. That's not a false statement. But there are plenty of other people in the Bible who perform miracles, and none of them are claiming to be God. Moses performs miracles. Elijah performs miracles. After Jesus ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit comes, the disciples perform miracles. The miracles in and of themselves are not proof of Jesus' divinity. But they are a window into who Jesus is. They give us a sense of his character and his person and his work. They, they peel back the veil so that we can see Jesus in all of his glory. And for John, these miracles are proof that Jesus can be trusted, that Jesus can provide life, that he's worth following. I think we'll see this as we dive into our text for the morning. So the introduction is short. We're going to jump right in. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 5, verse 1 through 18. And let me read the first portion of our passage for us as we explore the sign of the Lord Jesus. It says this, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked. 
So this passage zooms in on a visit that Jesus pays to Jerusalem for an unnamed festival. Uh, we don't get the title of it. We just know that it was a particular feast of, uh, among the Jewish people. And there's been debate among scholars about which feast this could be. Some people think that maybe it's Pentecost. Other people think that it might be Passover. Passover is the more common opinion. And because of that, it's why people sort of date Jesus' ministry to lasting roughly three years because there's about three Passovers that we find in the Gospels. Uh, but ultimately, we don't know. John doesn't tell us what festival Jesus is celebrating in Jerusalem, but ultimately Jesus finds himself in the city where the temple is among God's people, and he finds himself near what John calls the Sheep Gate by a pool known as Bethesda. And it might not surprise you that there's even some debate about the name. Is it Bethsaida? Is it Bethsaida? There's, there's all sorts of translation issues around this. But one of the unique things about this particular story in the Gospels is that unlike a lot of the stories of the Gospels, Scholars are pretty certain that we know the location of this event. For a long time, there was no pool with five roofed colonnades that had been uncovered in Jerusalem until about 100 years ago. When they uncovered this exact scene near the Sheep Gate next to a church known as the Church of St. Anne in Jerusalem, we're pretty sure you can go Google this and you can look at the exact place where this event happened. And John tells us that Jesus is there at these pools that in Jesus' day would have been outside of the walls of Jerusalem. In subsequent years, the, the city walls were expanded to enclose these pools. But in Jesus' day, they're outside of the city. And Jesus encounters a particular man there, a man who is lame. Most likely, he's a paraplegic. And perhaps you know somebody or have a family member who uh, has experienced the, the loss of the ability to use their legs. And man, praise God that we live in an era where medicine has advanced by God's grace to the point that people who suffer from this can live a long and, and healthy and vibrant life. But in Jesus' day, this particular ailment was a death sentence. It was condemnation to a life of loneliness, a life of being ostracized. One uh, New Testament scholar who himself is uh, bound to a wheelchair described that many people, especially in Jesus' day who suffered from this, were unable to control their bodily functions. And so if they didn't have somebody who loved them and cared for them and helped keep them clean, they struggled to maintain basic personal hygiene. If, if they didn't have friends or family who were willing to transport them, the only distance they could move is the distance that they could drag themselves. And very often in Jesus' day, people associated sickness with sin, which meant that if somebody fell ill, people ostracized them because they didn't want to be near sinners. By all appearances, this man is in such a situation. He says, I don't have anyone to carry me. He is left alone, suffering living off of whatever people will give to him out of pity. He has had an unbelievably hard life. He is someone who is familiar with suffering and poverty and sickness and loneliness. But he's not the only person suffering here at the Pool of Bethesda. John tells us that we're, there are a number of people who were sick and suffering. They were all gathered around this pool looking for healing. What is it about this site in particular that drew all of these people? 
Well, this is something that Christians have wrestled with. Early scribes believed that maybe there was some sort of a, a divine blessing on the pool and God would send angels from heaven into the pool and every time the angels would enter and bless the water, it would start to sort of churn. And the first person into the pool was the one who received the blessing. More than likely, what we know from excavating the site is that it was fed by a spring. And so the spring, whenever it was particularly active, would cause the waters to swell. And people believed that there was somehow some sort of a way that they might find relief from their pain by entering into these waters. This man says, if only I could be first, then I might be healed, but there's nobody to carry me in and I can't drag myself there fast enough to receive this blessing. It's interesting, over the last uh, hundred years or so, as, as people have excavated the site of Bethesda, they found a number of what archaeologists call votives. These are sort of statue figures of particular body parts that would be offered to the Greek and Roman gods as a thank you for being healed. And so as they've dug at the site of Bethesda, they found sculptures of arms and hands and legs and even boats. And the basic idea behind this was if the gods healed a particular body part, they would offer this sculpture as sort of a sacrifice of praise. And this was particularly tied to a Greek god known as Asclepius. And I've actually got a picture of one of these votives so you can kind of wrap your mind around it. So Zach, if you could throw this up. This was something that was found. Uh, well, that's just me. Uh, this is something that was found and sits in the British Museum of Archaeology. It was dedicated to the god Asclepius because this particular individual had struggled with some sort of an ailment in his leg and he believed that his god had healed him and so he created this and he placed it in one of the shrines to Asclepius. There were hundreds of these scattered throughout the ancient world. And interestingly, as people have dug at the pool of Bethesda, they found a ton of these. Interestingly, it's actually not too far from where the Roman legion for Jerusalem was stationed. There were plenty of Roman soldiers who worshipped Asclepius. And so what it seems is actually taking place here is that this man, who appears to be Jewish by all accounts, has come to this place where pagans go in the hopes that the pagan god will offer him healing. He is so absolutely desperate that he has come to the pools of Bethesda hoping that this Greek god Asclepius will heal him. Thinking that if he can climb into the water, maybe this god that his people don't worship, that didn't bring his ancestors out of the land of Egypt, maybe this god can save him from his suffering. And you can hear that, and you can cast judgment on this particular unnamed man. You might look at him with scorn, but I wonder how often sin in our life is the result of us doing essentially the same thing. We find ourselves at our wit's end. We're overwhelmed with our finances, we're frustrated with our kids, we're angry with our spouse, and we will turn to anything apart from Jesus to alleviate our suffering. We'll turn in any which way. We'll turn towards anything that the world offers in the hopes that that will make us better, that that will ease our pain. We do exactly what this man did all the time. But this is also where he encounters Jesus, by the pools of Bethesda. It's into this desperate situation that Jesus steps into this crowd of the sick and the impoverished, this collection of people who are so desperate for relief that they will try absolutely anything. 
And make no mistake, this is not the sort of place that a tourist to Jerusalem would want to go. This is outside of the city walls. It's outside of the protection of the city of Jerusalem. This is a place where pagans gather in the hopes of being healed by their false god. This is a place of poverty. It's a place of desperate need. But this is where Jesus is on this visit to Jerusalem. And that shouldn't surprise us, given how much the Bible talks about God's care for the poor and the needy and the suffering, that he is near to the brokenhearted again and again and again. God's criticism of the people of Israel is that they have neglected to care for the poor, and he judges Israel for that. It shouldn't surprise us that the word made flesh, the son of God, is among the sick and the needy and the impoverished here by the pools of Bethesda. And Jesus approaches this man, and he asks him a question that seems on the surface to be kind of silly. Do you want to be healed? The the answer, I think, if we're speaking sort of modern English, would be no duh, of course I do. John tells us that this man has been in this state for 38 years. The average life expectancy in Jesus' day is 40 years. So he is two years shy of a lifetime of suffering. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? It seems like a simple question. But notice, notice that Jesus takes initiative to speak to this man. Jesus is the one who initiates the conversation. Jesus is the one who moves towards this man who is suffering. That's actually profound. A couple years ago, a friend of mine was... um, was out running some errands, and he was out front of this coffee shop that served food, and uh, a homeless man approached him and said, hey, I'm, I'm not trying to bother you, but is, is there any chance that you could offer me just like a, a little bit of change so I can get something to eat? And my friend didn't have any cash on him, and so he said, hey, I, I don't have any money, but I've got a debit card. I can go inside, and I can buy you something to eat, uh, and we can hang out here for a little bit. And the guy agreed, and so my, my friend went inside, he bought like coffee and, and donuts, and he sat across from this homeless man, and they were talking, and, and at one point the man said, you know, it's so good to be able to sit down with somebody and have a conversation, because the hardest thing about the situation that I'm in right now is that people don't look at me anymore. They won't make eye contact with me. When, I, when I'm standing next to their cars, they roll their windows up and they stare at the ground. People have stopped seeing me as a person. And so the fact that you'll talk to me means everything. Recently, there was a a film that came out called Our Friend, based on a story that came out in the Atlantic that chronicles the death of a 36-year-old woman, uh, young but suddenly diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And it follows the story of her husband and her children as they try to care for her as she gets sicker and sicker. And at one point, she, she looks at her husband as the disease has begun to ravage her body to the point that people can notice she's not doing well. And she says, people don't look, to, look at me when they talk to me anymore. People don't look at me. There are certain aspects of this fallen world, certain horrors in life that prompt us to look away. We look away from poverty. We look away from sickness. But here's what we see in John 5. Jesus doesn't look away. Jesus is there in the midst of the least of these. 
And Jesus initiates this conversation. And that's worth reflecting on as well. This paralytic is presumably at this shrine to a pagan god looking for salvation from a pagan god, and Jesus starts the conversation with him. He says, do you want to be healed? It was the the early church leader Cyril of Alexandria who, in his commentary on John, really hones in on this verse. And he says this, it is clear proof of Christ's utmost goodness that he doesn't waste a moment waiting for requests from the sick, but he anticipates their request with his loving kindness. He runs, you see, to the one who's lying down. He has compassion on the one who is sick and helpless. Cyril says that Jesus is interested in healing this man even before he asks. And that's a surefire sign of his goodness. Jesus is looking to restore this this man even while this man is looking for help from other gods. Jesus is interested in extending to him grace. And I wonder if this isn't a small picture of the gospel. That while we, like this man, were chasing after other things apart from God, God showed us mercy. Paul puts it like this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This particular sign of Jesus, this particular miracle, it's a picture of the gospel itself that even before we knew Jesus, Jesus knew us. Even before we sought Christ, Christ was seeking us. While we were chasing after money and sex and power and the whole host of other things that the world promises, Jesus was on a mission to restore what sin has ruined in us. This man doesn't even know that his redemption is standing in front of him. He's still looking past Jesus towards the pool. But I think this is good news. You know, over the the years of preaching and teaching here at at Baylife, I've stood in this corner after sermons, and I've talked to dozens and dozens of parents whose children grew up in the church, grew up knowing and, and loving Jesus, and don't love Jesus anymore, aren't following Christ, aren't walking with the Lord. I've talked to so many parents who are so heartbroken about their children's decision to turn away from Christ. And there's understandable anxiety and fear and concern. Like, what do I do? How do I get my kid back in church? How do I get my kid to to begin to take Jesus seriously again? And I don't know that I have answers for all those questions. But here's what I do know. Even while your child is not pursuing Jesus, Jesus is pursuing your child. Even while your child is crawling towards the pool of Bethesda, hoping that Asclepius can bring life, Jesus is there following, pursuing, willing to bring healing. And I don't know if it'll come or when it'll come, but I do know that Jesus gets what Jesus wants. Jesus is here in the pool or by the pool of Bethesda. He asks this man a a basic question, do you want to be healed? And the man gives him this long answer that, you know, if only I could be the first into the waters when they're stirred up, then then I could be healed, but I, I can't make it on my own and there's nobody here to bring me. And Jesus responds, get up, take up your bed and walk. Notice he bypasses the pool altogether. He doesn't say, well, let me help you get in the next time the water's stirred up. He goes, none of this Asclepius stuff is going to actually heal you, but I can heal you. Get up. 
take up your bed and walk. And with that, he does. And here's where John lets us in on an important piece of information that he has up until now withheld from us. This comes to us in verse, uh, the end of verse 9. John says, now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for, who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, see you're well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So we find that in the midst of this sign, in the midst of this miracle, there is a controversy. Because Jesus has worked this miracle on the Sabbath. Now maybe you're new to church or maybe first time back in a while, you kind of need a little bit of a refresher. In Jewish theology, in the Old Testament, God creates in seven days and on the seventh seventh day, he rests from his work of creating. And this becomes sort of the pattern for human life that we work for six days and we rest on the seventh day. And God commands the people of Israel to mark this seventh day called the Sabbath to keep it holy to devote themselves to abstaining from work on the Sabbath day. They're meant to rest. And this rest is is meant to be a time of reflection as they reflect on God's mercy towards them, as they reflect on uh, God's promised ultimate rest when the Messiah comes. It's meant to be a time where they stop working altogether. It's a day that they are meant to keep holy. And because it's holy... The Old Testament has all sorts of laws about the sort of work that they are not allowed to participate in on the Sabbath day. There's also all sorts of rules and regulations that prevent people from violating the Sabbath, from breaking this commandment. But between the giving of the law and the time of Jesus, religious leaders, out of the sincere desire to not break the Sabbath, had developed rules to protect you from breaking the actual rules around the Sabbath. It was rules on top of rules on top of rules so that you would never run the risk of accidentally breaking one of the actual rules that God had spoken. And we can look at this and we can kind of look at this with, with scorn and with um, sort of a, like a, man, that's so silly and, and that's how legalistic. And, and that's just not really fair to the people of Israel. They were genuinely trying to keep God's law. Like one of the reasons that Israel as a nation is invaded and destroyed and conquered in the exile is because they failed to keep the Sabbath. So the rules are there because they are really trying to follow God's rules. But as time goes on, the rules get more and more and more abstract. They get a little bit more ridiculous. And we come to Jesus' day where the laws on top of laws have become outrageous. Let me give you a couple examples. This comes from Leon Morris, who's a New Testament scholar, and he reads through some of the rabbinic literature, the things that rabbis were writing to help people keep the Sabbath. Uh, Let me read you a few of the rabbinical rules. A man may borrow of his fellow 
or his neighbor, a jar of wine or jars of oil, as long as he does not say to him, lend me them. Because this would imply a transaction, and a transaction might involve writing, and writing is work, therefore it is forbidden on the Sabbath. You see how this is 15 degrees removed from the rule to not work? You can ask your neighbor for uh, like wine or flour or oil, but if you say lend it to me, then there needs to be a receipt and you have to write to produce a receipt. And writing is kind of like work, therefore it has to be a free exchange. Here's another example. A man may not put vinegar on his teeth to alleviate a toothache. Side note, I didn't even know that helped with toothaches. But a man may not put vinegar on his teeth to alleviate a toothache because this would be work. But he may take vinegar in the ordinary course of a meal and if he is healed, then he is healed. The basic idea being you cannot put vinegar on your tooth because that would be an act of work. But if you're eating like a raspberry vinaigrette salad and it happens to touch your tooth and it happens to fix the problem, then you're okay. So you can see how in an effort to do a noble thing to keep God's laws, the rules had become more and more and more extreme and more and more removed from the actual commandments of God. It was the Anglican priest Leslie Newbegin who pointed out that in John's gospel, the, the Jews, the religious leaders, they really represent all of us. They're not uniquely blind or stubborn people, he says. They represent established religion. They represent us. If you think that this problem that Jesus is dealing with is unique to Jesus' day, you are woefully misinformed. I remember 10 years ago, there was a song that came out that took my generation by storm. It was written by a a North Carolina worship leader, a guy by the name of John Mark McMillan, who is still one of my favorite singer-songwriters to this day. And he had written this song the day after his friend Stephen had died suddenly in a car wreck at a young age. And the chorus of this song, I'm sure you're all familiar with it, is is incredibly simple. It's just a reflection on the love of God. Oh, how he loves us so. Oh, how he loves us. And I can just tell you that I saw this song spread through my circle of friends like wildfire. This, This simple affirmation that God loves us was somehow exactly what people needed to hear. It's biblical, it's true, it's accurate to what scripture says. For kids who grew up in broken homes, for kids who grew up estranged from their parents, for children who grew up in maybe abusive households, this simple phrase, oh, how he loves us so, was really, really important. But no sooner had this song caught on than the blogs started to roll out. Because you see, there's a line in the bridge uh, describing God's care for us and our suffering, and, and the phrase is essentially, heaven meets earth like a sloppy, wet kiss. And people started looking at that and going, well, sloppy implies that there was a lack of care and God doesn't lack care and God never does anything sloppily. And so if we say that God's care for us is like a sloppy, wet kiss, then that might imply that God's doing things half-heartedly and God doesn't do things half-heartedly. And so really the theology of this song is actually probably heresy and we probably shouldn't sing the song at all lest doctrinal error creep into our churches. And the armchair theologians twisted their hands into knots around this phrase, sloppy wet kiss, to the point that when David Crowder re-recorded the song, which is the version that most people know, he changed the words to avoid controversy. This simple song about the love of God, a line that is obviously meant to be poetic and artistic, 
became a source of unending controversy because we can't help ourselves. We can't help but twist ourselves into knots over everything. Even when we miss what God is actually up to right in front of us. You think the religious leaders in Jesus' day were the only ones that could miss what God is doing because they got hung up on the wrong things? Example one, how he loves. And look what happens in this interaction. This man, who has been paralyzed for 38 years, is up and walking. And the first thing they say is, who told you you could carry your mat? They've missed the miracle because they are so hung up on minutia. Fortunately for Jesus, he hadn't given this man his name. He sort of faded back into the crowd. And so they, the man is honest. He says, I don't know who told me I could pick up my mat. The guy who healed me. And Jesus encounters him sometime later at the temple. It's likely that this man went to the temple to offer sacrifices to thank God for bringing healing. And Jesus says, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, Jesus is not saying here that this man's illness was the result of sin. Actually, a couple chapters later, Jesus will encounter a blind man, and the disciples will say, who sinned, this guy or his parents? There must be a sin behind his blindness, and Jesus says, neither. That's not how this works. So Jesus is not saying, you sinned last time, and it got you into the situation you were in. Don't do it again. He's warning of the coming judgment of God that comes against all sinners. He's saying, look, you're well, but know that your sin will bring you under judgment before a perfect and holy God on the day of judgment. But the minute that Jesus encounters him, the man goes and he tells the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. So he doesn't seem to be a particularly nice guy, does he? It's clear that the religious leaders are looking to prosecute Jesus for violating the Sabbath, although he hasn't. He's violated one of the man-made commandments around the Sabbath. And this guy goes and he names names. And it's with this that the religious leaders seek to persecute Jesus. We read in verse 16, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They approach Jesus and say, why have you broken the rules that we've created around the Sabbath? Not the biblical ones, but the rules around the rules. And Jesus says, my father's working, and so am I. And here Jesus is appealing to the Jewish understanding of what Sabbath entails for God. Because God creates the world in six days, and on the seventh day, we're told he rests from all of his work in creation. And Jewish people said, fair enough. But we also know that the only reason that the universe continues to exist is because Yahweh continues to uphold it. They knew that Yahweh sends rain on the just and on the unjust, even on the Sabbath. They knew in the words of the Psalms that Yahweh stretches out his hand and he feeds the birds of the air. So even though God has stopped creating on the Sabbath, he's ceased from that sort of work, he's still working to sustain and guide and care for creation. And Jesus says, my father's still working, so am I. 
Jesus brings himself into the closest possible relationship with the God of Israel. Because the Father continues to care for and sustain the world, even on the Sabbath, Jesus, who is of the same substance as the Father, if you're in my foundations class, you should know where that comes from, Council of Nicaea, 325 AD. Because Jesus is of the same substance as the Father, he is also at work caring for and sustaining the world, even while humanity rests. Because Jesus is equal to the Father in power, glory, and sovereignty, he continues to sustain all things, even on the Sabbath. The religious leaders understand what he's doing. Jesus is claiming to be God. Jesus is claiming to share in the identity of the God of Israel. And so they seek to kill him. Now John includes all of this to help us understand the conflict that's brewing. To help us understand why people are so opposed to the message of Jesus. It's not just because he's healing people, it's because he's claiming that God is his father. But there's something in Jesus' phrase, my father is working, and so I am working, that I think should offer us comfort as we kind of conclude our time together here. It might even offer us a, a stable foundation for our own rest. Let me explain what I mean by that. For, uh, for most of my early 20s, every summer and winter break, I spent in a van on tour in like a hardcore punk rock band. That was just my life. I used all of my vacation time, all of my sick time, and I would climb in the van and I would tour across the country playing in basements and at bars. And uh, I'll tell you that it's not nearly as glamorous as it looks on TV. Uh, we, we weren't touring in like Guns N' Roses. Uh, this was a six guys in a 15 or 16 passenger van uh, making less than $100 a show without hotels, driving all night, all night, most nights to make it to the next show. And early on in our time touring, we had uh, something of an accident in the van. It was three or four in the morning. We were driving through southern Georgia. A tire blew out. And our driver didn't know how to respond to that, so he slammed on the brakes as soon as the tire blew out, which put our van into a tailspin. Uh, and it basically left us sort of this way while the road was going this way, which meant that the semi-truck behind us couldn't see us anymore. And so we survived, and everything was okay. But for the next couple years of touring, none of us could sleep in the van at night. Like, I would wake up hearing the tire pop. I think my brother still does in, when he sleeps in whatever car he's in. So that made it a lot harder because you're driving all night, you can't sleep because there's this sort of traumatic experience that keeps welling up. That was until we brought one of our friends who we'll call Steve on board. Steve had been touring for 10 years. Steve was the all-time QB of van driving. Steve was trustworthy. And Steve never pumped the brakes when a tire blew out. <laughs> Steve also had this inhuman ability that he didn't need to sleep. And so Steve said, I'll drive the van. I'll, I'll do all the night drives. You guys can sleep. It's fine. That was the first time I was able to sleep in the van on tour. Why? Because I knew that the guy behind the wheel was not going to sleep even when I was. When I knew that, that the guy behind the wheel was going to take care of things even while I was resting. Jesus says this to the Pharisees, my father is working and so am I. That's true even to this day. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, but he still continues to govern and sustain and guide all things. 
And you know what that means? That means you can take a break. That means that you can go to sleep. That means that you can rest. That means that you can take a Sabbath knowing that he who keeps Israel never slumbers or sleeps. That Jesus continues to work even when you don't. And that gives us the ability to release things. In a world that is marked by so much suffering, when we fear for our finances, for our health, for our kids, the the temptation is to run ourselves ragged trying to keep everything going. But Jesus' words remind us the Father is working and he is working. And that gives us, his people, freedom to rest. Knowing that in our Sabbath, Jesus is still in the business of seeking out and healing the broken, caring for the needy, and leading us safely towards his kingdom. So may you rest in that this week when you're tempted towards a life of hurry. Would you pray with me as we conclude our time together? Lord, we love you. We thank you that you continue to work even as you command us to rest. Help us to be a people who rest. Help us to rest in the knowledge that you seek out those who are suffering, those who are far from you. You bring your mercy and your grace. Help us to rest in the fact that you continue to guide and sustain and care for all things. Help us to rest in your goodness, God, to trust you, even when we don't know what's coming next. Lord, we thank you for all of these things. We thank you for your care for us. We thank you for the goodness of the gospel and the work of Jesus. We ask all these things in Christ's name. And we say, amen. Go in peace, Bay Life. We'll see you next week.